All right, take your Bible and open to Judges chapter 2. Also, if it's of interest to you, there was a little half sheet uh, of notes that was on the, the back table. The front half of that has an outline, some things to look at, and the back half of it has some verses that we might refer to quickly. And so if we don't have time to turn there, you can, you can turn that over and, and look at it. So we're going to continue our study in Judges, and we're going to pick up in verse 6 of chapter 2. So Judges chapter 2, verse 6, here's what it says. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of an in, his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Now, we realize that chapter breaks in the Bible don't always happen maybe where we think it would make the most sense or where a story divides the way we think it would. It almost seems like chapter 1 should go through verse 9. If you look back at the beginning of Judges chapter 1, it says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. We talked about how that's almost sort of a title or summary for the whole book, because then it backtracks and tells stories from the book of Joshua. Then you get to Judges down there where we read in verse 8, and it says, Judges chapter 2, verse 8, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and it tells about his burial. I would expect chapter 1 to end there and chapter 2 to pick up at verse 10, but alas, that's not the way it was divided. But I do want you to see the way that 1-1 through 2-9 is meant to fit together as a section because it's bookended by the reference to Joshua's death. Uh, in the Bible, your Bible, especially your Old Testament, is full of that literary device of bookend. It, it, you can use it a lot of different words to refer to that, but it just means an element is presented, something else happens, and then that same element is repeated. It's meant to make you focus on everything that happened in between. And so what it's doing is the beginning of Judges is preparing you for this transition that's going to happen from Joshua to the generation that comes after Joshua. And if you read Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, you would take away this idea of things are going to be great. Um, To use modern-day language, they have been teed up for success. The ball is sitting on the tee. You cannot mess this up. Just hit the ball, and it's going to be great. They are teed up. Everything should go perfectly at this point. Then you get to verse 10, and it almost seems unthinkable, but all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. On your notes, I've called this the difficulty of generational transfer, um, which is a whole bunch of words to say, how do you make sense of 
a believing generation that had seen the Lord bring them into the promised land. They were sent into their inheritance. All they had to do was go in and enjoy what God had given them. And then it's dropped. The ball is dropped by, by the next generation. What's going on here? Well, there's, there's several pieces to this. And, and there's an emotional part to this that I want to be aware of because it hits home very closely with, with some of you and your testimony and stories. And so I want to, want to be very careful about that, especially tonight. But there's kind of a couple of elements. There's a theme in the Bible of believing godly parents being followed by children who don't honor the Lord and, and don't follow the Lord. A couple of quick references, and I don't know that I put any of these on the back of your, of your notes, but just a, a couple of reminders. Leviticus chapter 10, you have the story of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who took the offering and offered it in an unauthorized way before the Lord that he had not commanded them. They offered bad fire, and in return, fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So Leviticus 10 gives you that story of Aaron's sons. 1 Samuel chapter 2 talks about how the sons of Eli, uh, verse 12, the sons of Eli are described as worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Uh, kind of a nightmare description of your kids. You think about Eli and the role that he plays there in beginning the run of the kings and the way that God's going to use the kingdom uh, there of Israel. And Eli's sons were worthless men who did not know the Lord. Second Kings chapter 23, this is the story of, remember Josiah was one of the young kings who came along and he restored the people to the word of the Lord. And so he puts the word of the Lord back. He begins to lead them toward following the Lord. And it says that his son Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign and he reigned three months and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. How do you have it that you would have Aaron and Eli and Josiah, you would have these giants of the faith who were godly, and then they would have children who didn't know the Lord, who didn't love the Lord, didn't follow the Lord? Uh, how do we make sense of that? A couple of things to point you toward. Verse 11 in Judges chapter 2. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then look down at verse 13. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. One of the things that we see there in those verses is the people, the second generation, has to take the responsibility for their actions. In other words, verses 11 and 13 don't blame the previous generation for what's happened responsibility is put with the people who went astray. And in Scripture, there's a very clear idea that there's a, such a thing as generational influence. Generational influence, I do believe that's the first set of verses on the back of your notes. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. There is definitely in Scripture this idea of generational influence. You just look at your own family of origin, and you think about the influence that that family of origin has on your life. And this makes sense of a lot of things that each of us deal with. 
But when you sit through those studies and you're asked to talk about your parents and you begin to think about the influence that your parents have, one of my concerns of that is that we would turn around and blame everything on our parents. Except scripture doesn't let you get away with that. It says, yes, there is such a thing as generational influence. And sometimes that influence is very negative. We fight temptations that our fathers fought, or we, we fight temptations that our grandmothers fought. You know, there, there are these influences that are passed down, but there's still such a thing as generational responsibility. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Uh, now, I have almost no room to speak into this conversation, so I'm just going to get the conversation started, and then the rest of you can tell stories afterward to fill in the blank, or you can be a good influence in my life. But our kids are still really little, uh, so we're still in the early stages of this. But we do know, and we're already seeing it very clearly with kids, that you can have influence, but you don't have control. Um, you, you point them toward the Lord. You seek to provide that influence. You look in your own heart and say, you know, what's going on here in my heart? How is this impacting my kids? You're always aware of those type of things. And then you live with... I don't even know what word. I, fear is the only word that comes to my life, mind, but it's a, it's a good fear. It's a fear of the Lord where you say, Lord, I'm entrusting these kids. I'm, I'm going to point them toward the Lord, but I realize that I can't save them. I, I can't force them to go a particular direction. And even with our kids being little, we already know oftentimes the more you try to force them into a particular direction, the more they rebel against that and start to, start to go a different direction. Trying to balance that out in Scripture, and we've talked about this before, and Andy Harrison mentioned this really well at the marriage conference a, a couple of weeks ago. There is no room in the Bible for taking an approach to parenting that just says, hey, let your kids figure it out. Scripture doesn't have anything to do with that. It's very much, you point your kids toward the Lord, you bring them up in the ways of the Lord, but even in saying that, you don't have control over the decisions they're going to make and the directions that they're going to go uh, many of you know the feeling of a kid who has gone astray and then has come back to the Lord and the joy of that. And many of you know the feeling of a kid who has gone astray and has not come back, who continues to live far from the Lord and, and the emotions and pain that's built up with that. So there is here this generational transfer. And you go back to verse 10 just for a second. Judges chapter 2, verse 10. All that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And you want to say, how could you not know the work of the Lord? This is probably one of those places in the Bible where the word know takes on a couple of different nuances. There's no in the sense that you know the information, and then there's no in the sense that it's coming to your heart. You know it intimately. Many of you who have had stories or no stories of children who have gone away from the Lord as they grew up, you would say about those kids, they know the word. They know the right way to go. They know about the things of God. They know it, but they don't really know it. They've never truly, it's never gone from here to here. And, and we don't say that in a callous way or an oversimplified way. It's just the fact that you can have a lot of information about the things of the Lord and grow up and begin to go. And oftentimes when those kids as adults come back to the Lord, they'll say things like, 
I knew what I was supposed to be doing, or, or I, I knew it just in my heart. I was rebelling against it. I, I didn't want to go that direction. And so is there generational influence? Absolutely. But there's also generational responsibility that's given here. And, and there's just so much that goes into how do we make these things known to our kids? I put down four things on there that you find in the Old Testament about how God's plan for knowing him and his work how do you lay this before your kids, hoping they'll take hold of it, trusting, praying that the Lord will do that work? The first thing you find in the Old Testament, and this, this, this works in the New Testament as well, but the first thing you see is creation and what we would call common grace, just God's common goodness to his people. Uh, this is the Matthew 7 idea that it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. You don't have to be a Christian to experience the goodness of God's creation, the goodness of God's world. And so God gives the goodness of creation. Romans 1 says we're able to know his power because of his creation. And so whether someone is living for the Lord or not living for the Lord, they're able to know the Lord through common grace, through the giving of creation. Two are parents, and even more importantly, or just as importantly, parental assistance. Parental assistance would be all of you helping me. Uh, and me helping all of you, and we said it a hundred times, and we'll say it a thousand more. You tell your kids something, don't listen. Person X tells your kids something, oh, it makes perfect sense now. You know, all of a sudden they hear it with they hear it with new ears. And those are parental assistants. Those are the people that you need speaking into your into your life. And so that's something the Lord gives. Public worship. How do we know the Lord? We know the Lord when we gather together with His people uh, to worship. Once again, I'm speaking out of turn because of the age of my kids, but one thing I have, I have seen is you fight that battle when your kids are starting to get a little bit older and they don't want to go to church. And I know you can argue both sides of this. Do you force them to go? Do you not force them to go? The one thing you do see in Scripture is that gathered worship is an opportunity for people to encounter the Lord over and over and over again. And so I'm, I'm hesitant to give parental advice other than the fact that from Scripture, what you find is gathered worship is a repetitive opportunity for people to encounter the Lord. And so when parents do ask me this, I say, as long as you can, for lack of a better word, you force your kids into gathered worship because it's another opportunity for them to know the Lord. I, I don't want their hearts to grow callous to that. I don't want to use it as a way for them to rebel, but... You use every bit of influence you have because gathered public worship is one of God's gifts to us to continue to experience that. And so even when they come in with a bad attitude, even when they don't want to be there, there's always that moment that God would use that to, to soften their hearts. And so, like I say, I offer that advice cautiously, but I do think it has a good biblical background that as long as you have that influence, use this gift of, of public worship. And then fourth, for the people of Israel, it was Passover. It, it was these yearly feasts and festivals that the people would go to. What does that look like for us? Well, when your kids have gone astray, when they're not serving the Lord, Christmas and Easter come around every year, Mother's Day comes around every year, and shamelessly you just use those to your advantage. Um, and you say, here comes another opportunity three times a year between Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day that I have an opportunity to connect again with my kids and try to provide that, that godly influence. And so for the Israelites, they were all coming to Passover. Um, it was just what you did. Well, in our culture, 
barely hanging on is this idea that, well, I'll still go on Christmas, or I'll still go on Easter, I'll still go on Mother's Day. So you continue to use those, those opportunities. But the book of Judges is a reminder that generational transfer is not easy. And, and moreover, it's not automatic either at that point. So, okay, let's move to verse 11. Keep the train going. Uh, verse 11. The people, that, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Okay, let's, let's stop there for just a minute. What you have going on here is willful sin that we've talked about. They're, the responsibility lays with them. They know what God has done, intellectually anyway. They've, they've seen what God has done for the people, and they just say, we're going to go our own way. For whatever reason, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you do. I'm going my own way. And this is, this is that type of willful sin. In, in the Old Testament law, it's referred to as high-handed sin. Uh, this phrase, high-handed sin, comes from Numbers 15. Numbers 15, verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. This is a portion of the law where it says that people are treated differently when their sin was accidental. It's not quite the right word, but it's something that you realize, I did it in the course of life. I didn't do it blatantly. I didn't do it with a high hand, almost with my hand in the face of the Lord. I'll do whatever I want to. You say what you want, but I'm going to do whatever. It's, it's blatant. It's Verse 31, he's despised the word of the Lord there in, in Numbers 15. You fast forward to the, old, or to the New Testament. If your Sunday school class was going through 1 Corinthians and you've made it to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5 talks about a type of sin uh, where, where a man is sleeping with his stepmom and, and the community is acting arrogant about it, being boastful about it. Uh, high-handed sin is when you're arrogant about your sin. You're boastful about it. Like, I'm going to show off. I, it's not anything I'm trying to hide anymore. I, I'm being boastful about it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is that high-handed sin. On this topic, uh, Matt Chandler has a really good description that I come back to frequently. In fact, we were talking about it in the office today because of some things that we were, uh, we were discussing. But Chandler talks about the difference between fighting sin, justifying sin, and setting up camp in sin. Fighting sin says, I hate the fact that this is happening in my life. 
I continue to battle against this. I do not want this to characterize my life. And I'm going to do everything I can that this is not who, who I am and what I, what I want to do. Justifying sin is when you start to make excuses for it. When you start to say, well, you know, maybe it's not that big a deal or uh, maybe it's not that, maybe, you know, everybody struggles with this. It was just for the Bible. It's not for now. Those type of things. When you start to justify it. Setting up camp in sin is when it's high-handed, it's blatant, it's I'm going to do this. It doesn't matter what anybody says. Um, and frankly, at that point, we don't need help filling in the dots because we can think in our own life of times that that's taken place. And then we can think about people we know and love who that's been the progression. I fight the sin. I justify the sin. I set up camp in the sin and say this is just going to be be who I am. Then it says back there, back there in verse 12, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So they're abandoning, they're going after these other gods. Okay, open discussion time for the next few minutes on a couple of couple of points. What makes what makes another god or another way of living so appealing that we would go away from that we would forsake and abandon the god of our fathers, the the god of the Bible? What what makes these other ways so appealing? And, and this is, we've gone way past fishing for anything. I, this is just open discussion. I, I wrote this down as I was studying this afternoon. But uh, what makes these other ways so appealing that, that we would abandon the way of the Lord? Say what? What they allow. Okay, yeah, so... My parents are so constricting, and they have all these rules, and God has this. I'm just going to go over here where we use phrases like, I can do whatever I want to, or, you know, it looks like. Now, we realize that what starts off as freedom quickly becomes slavery. We'll see that. We'll see that next week. Um, But it looks so open and good, and I can do whatever I want to. Yeah, Debbie? Sure, yeah. Becomes that, right. Yeah, yeah. You, you're so hurt because of something that's happened that you say, I'm not staying here, I'm going, going somewhere else. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the allure of that prosperity, yeah. Think of the prodigal son story from, from Luke 15 of, going to go and get, get, get what's mine. Definitely not, no. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so when the, when the religion, when you just get burned out on that religion, you say, well, I'm going to go try something else. As if religion, you just go from one to one trying the next one when there's not that relationship. Abandoning a religion and abandoning a relationship are two entirely different things. Um, and, yeah, that's, you're exactly right about that. Yeah, Kenny? Yeah. Sure, they become a. Yeah, they become a thorn. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good word. Okay, so taking that idea, and we we say that not in a. Uh, <laughs> we say that in the way that Amanda and I talk about. <laughs> We're not above any of that. We're not saying that like, hey, those people over there. We're saying like, this is, this is for us. We're, we're not above anything. Um, different question, kind of on the same topic though. How do, you, how do we help people not move from fighting sin to justifying sin? So in other words, what causes someone to make that transition? This is the question I'm thinking about a lot as, as pastoring because it hurts when you see people fighting sin, but you think, I want to fight with you. I, I want to help you. What happens in that transition from fighting sin to justifying sin, and how do we help people never go there? How do you stay at fighting and not get to justifying? Any, any, and some of it's tied up in what we just talked about, so any thoughts on that? Yeah, Jim? That's my, that's my concern is that I'm tempted to, you know, sweep something under the rug or not pay attention to it. You kick the can down the road and you end up opening the door. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, he's talking about break. You got to break that chain somewhere there early. Uh, you got to break the link where the imagery of sweeping it on the rug is the more you sweep it on the rug, the bigger the pile gets and you're going to trip over it. Or uh, I've used this imagery as well about uh, the straw that breaks the camel's back is never going to get there if you constantly unload the camel. And so you just have to keep, keep taking the straw off, keep taking the keep dealing with things. If you let something build up, pretty soon there is a straw that breaks the camel's back. And so, yeah, Debbie. Sure. That's a good word, yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, Debbie, because it look when you go from fighting to justifying to setting up camp, you've gone from something that's more difficult to something that's easier. It, it, it's easier to justify, and it's a lot easier when you just sit in the middle of your junk and say, well, here's, this is who I am. I'm just, I'm just going to be here. Fighting, fighting's hard. <laughs> Fighting is where you're, I don't I was about to expand on something that was obvious, but it's, it's fighting. It's difficult, you know. Uh, you don't fight alone. You, you need someone there 
need someone there with you. Um, Yeah, it is, but that's perfectly well said, though. Yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah. I think that's another point, but I go back to the marriage conference again when Andy and Kim Harrison were here. Andy talked about the passage from Proverbs 26 about the danger of whisperers, someone who is constantly whispering in your ear, validating what you're doing um, when it's not what you know the Lord has called you to do. And you hear you just hear that, oh, it's okay, this is gonna be fine, I'm with you, God just wants you to be happy. Well, pretty soon you do find yourself, oh, this is okay, and then you just set up camp and um to Susan's point a second ago, having somebody else, pro, the whole book of Proverbs when we did that study is about competing voices. You have one set of voices saying, oh, don't follow the Lord, and then you have to have someone else speaking the truth, and when the truth is silent, all you're hearing is, this is okay, do what you want. And so, to use Mike's point about the break the, break the link, break the chain. Oh, yeah, that's what Cam was getting at. Yeah, absolutely. It sure looks good right here, and then you get there, and, well, that wasn't enough, and so you press a little further. And, and the prodigal son, he tried it out for a while and then realized this wasn't all that I, I thought it was going to be. And so, yeah, I think you're right, James. Speaking the truth in love, that's a hard, how do you speak the truth in a loving way that they can receive it? Deanne, were you saying something? Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that Galatians 6 idea about you bear one another's burdens, but, but be, on, be on guard about that, so. This whole topic of fighting sin, justifying sin, setting up camp and sin, this has been on my heart so much lately as a pastor, just things that, that we've run into and dealt with. Um, and so we, we, we do this as a church. We do this as a family. Okay, let's move uh, to the next part of the notes. God's willing grace, uh, verse 16 
the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So even in the midst of this willing sin, we find God's willing grace, that he is stepping in there, making a way for them to come back, making a way for them to know him. Uh, but his anger is present. His wrath is present. None of that is, is hidden away, but he continues to make a way. The interesting thing is, the way he makes that way for them to come back is often through the mode of testing um, it's, it often comes through testing. If you look down at the very end of chapter 2, and we're going to wrap up with this. The very end of chapter 2, so the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly. This is 2.23. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people uh, of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had known it before. This idea of God's testing is not the same as tempting. He's not tempting for the purpose that they'll sin. He's testing them to see that they will trust him. And, and testing is a form of discipline. It's a form of saying... Uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a chance to live this out. I want to see if you're going to be able to take advantage of, of that opportunity. It's the way a coach would treat a team. It's the way a parent would teach, treat a child. An employer would teach a, a, treat an employee. You're going to put a test out there to say, will you do this? Will you, will you stay faithful? Do you have what it takes? Um, and so it's an act of grace that he's even giving you this opportunity, but, but you have to take a, advantage of it. And it's pointing toward this idea of learned trust. There's one last verse I want to point you toward, and then we'll wrap up. The very bottom of your, uh, your paper there on the back, testing in this idea of learned trust, Hebrews 5.8. Although, speaking of Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Strikes us kind of as a strange verse to be given about Jesus. But Hebrews 5.8, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Um, to truly know what it is to follow the Lord, you have to go through times of testing. You have to go through times of suffering. Go back, circle back to the very beginning tonight. Um, a child can't just receive the faith of their parents and then go through life and never face a test or never face a trial, or never face suffering. You learn obedience through suffering. Uh, you, you learn by playing the game. You've got to get in the game at some point. And so one, what we want to do with our kids is, as early as possible, get them in the game. Give them tests. Give them opportunities. Say, this is not easy. This is not just come to church on Sunday, get the information, and live your life however you want. You've got to be tested, uh, a little suffering is, is going to be okay, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to teach you to trust the Lord. And so the whole idea here is that a generation had never gone to war, uh, to use a bad modern illustration, they had just played war games on their, uh, 
their video system and they thought, oh, look at me, I'm a great fighter. No, you sit on the sofa and you play a video game. That's not war. Uh, You've never been actually in the battle. Sometimes Christianity is like that. Oh, I'm a Christian. But have you ever been in the battle? Have you ever known what it is to fight? Have you ever known what it is to really trust the Lord, to go through that time of suffering? And that's where we really learn that, learn that obedience. And so God's grace is shown in that way. If you want to come back next week, uh, we have the Multiply Church mission team, and we have the left-handed guy with a short sword who sticks it into another man's belly. So uh, Judges 3. Judges 3 is as good as it gets if you want to bring any of your uh, junior hires to learn about the left-handed guy with the dagger that puts it in the man's belly. So, uh, all right, let me pray for us. Oh, I'm sorry, Phyllis. Yes, yeah. That New Morning Mercies book, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for saying that. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for this group of people. Thank you for what they mean to me and my family. Thank you for the gift of your word. Father, talking about this idea of uh, generational responsibility and the idea of high-handed sin, God, I pray that nothing that was said was talking about other people out there somewhere. It, it's about my own heart as a pastor and a husband and a dad. And we don't ever for a second want to think that we are above something or above some sort of temptation. God, every one of us fights against sin, and we're so tempted to justify it or just set up camp in it. But God, I pray that we would trust you. Uh, God, as you, as you provide those tests, as you provide the strength and direction, uh, God, that we would be in the fight together. We'd be able to trust one another, share with one another, love one another, speak the truth to one another. Uh, God, thank you for your grace in the midst of all that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks again for being here. God bless you all.